Rotherings fam, my friend, former colleague from New Leaders, Kate Gerson is my guest today. And something that you should all know about her is Kate is one of the few white aspiring anti-racists that I know that I work with in the sector. And for me as someone who takes that term seriously, Kate gets it. And what I've always appreciated so deeply about Kate is that it's about her growth. It's about learning from past mistakes, past challenges, and finding the grace and healing within herself and being able to figure out how to build that in organizations throughout the world. So check out what Kate has to say. You'll love it. Hey, friends. Back on Ronderings, and I have my friend, co-conspirator in all things diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism, you know, Kate Grisson, who I first met when we worked at New Leaders back in the mid-2000s. So it's going to be a real treat, y'all. Welcome, Kate. How are you doing? Thanks, Ron. I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Well, why don't we go ahead and chop it up, Kate? Why don't you tell our audience what your story is? Well, today my story involves construction. So please know that I'm aware of the noise in the background and hopefully it'll stop shortly. But my story is, well, starts with a complicated childhood, a childhood that was rooted in violence and uh, a lot of love and a fair amount of violence, fair amount of trauma. I got to college having no, having made no meaning of that, right? And so I had sort of just been sort of reacting and living and surviving, got to college, found myself in a bunch of feminist theory classes, a bunch of post-colonial theory classes, cultural theory, and started to really learn about the way, in Bell Hooks's words, the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy fits together, right? And the role that domination, violence, poverty, gender, race has to do with all of that, right? And so I came to really understand my own suffering as part of a much larger hierarchy of suffering, a much larger system, really, and made meaning of what had happened to me by really thinking about a bigger picture wherein the suffering of a white woman at the hands of a white man within her own family is a piece of a much bigger puzzle, right? And so it gave me access mm. to understanding oppression, to understanding violence and inequity. And it became really my life's work to dismantle that system to the best of my ability to into any way I could help to do so. Mm. I think what I would add sort of that's that sort of that commitment forward resulted in a series of relationships and networks that really grounded that fight for oppression in schools as an obvious place where, you know, this is where you and I met, right? Like where, where oppression, race, class, gender, power, language meet in the middle in schools, mm. in a system that was invented to, you know, sort of perpetuate the status quo and certainly not undo it. And so here we come as this like generation of reformers who <laughs> I really, yeah, really yeah. did believe in our lifetime would dismantle the uh, achievement gap, would just pull it apart, right? And it is so stuck. It is so the systemic nature of 
a presumption of intellectual inferiority on the part of black and brown people in this country and the systemic nature of just shit access and low expectations and largely really crappy training in, in adults, right? Like, so you end up with this system that is just so hard to move. Mm. And in pushing at that system and in sort of grinding and leading in this very sort of Joel Klein or John Schnur or John King, these heroes of that reform, Wendy Cobb is another one, right? Like, the, like these heroes who don't sleep, these heroes who just go and just demand and just mm. work, right? And these work yes. cultures that we all came up in, I was leading one of them, right? In that vein, in that same like... I don't care what you're feeling, do it. <laughs> like We have to do it. We have to go. We have to go now hard yeah. all the time with unbelievable urgency, 24 hours a day and a very clear idea of the one right way to do things. And, you know, like this, this culture of not worrying about the humans, but worrying about the mission. Right. And so the irony of that in my world created like a cataclysmic conflict of interest, right? Because we were, we were pushing so hard to serve children and that required such a disregard for the needs and health uh, and wellness and community of the adults doing that work, right? And so for me, that really came to a head in my understanding and my knowing uh, about what would have to be true for this work to feel like a place of real wellness and wholeness and care for everyone involved while we push this rock uphill, right? While we pull at these strings, while we dismantle the white supremacist uh, capitalist patriarchy, like while we pull at these ways of keeping some people small, we have to make sure that we aren't keeping anyone small in our own community, including ourselves. And so for me, that, that meant like a, a several years of like really careful, thoughtful reflection on sort of how I had landed at this moment of the devil wears Prada was a, is a phrase that was used near or about me in a couple of different contexts. Right. And so like really examining wow. like sort of how I had, oh, don't act like you don't know. So I started really examining <laughs> sort of how I had arrived at this moment, really like trying to lead in this, in this sort of cultural fashion that I had been raised on, watching it really conflict with the cause, with the mission, with the work. And so mm -hmm. I'm along the way have met, you know, heroes and mentors and colleagues and friends and uh, just beloved people. And one by one asked a small group of folks to establish a new entity with me. And so there's about six of us who are co-founders, not the least of which is, and probably the most key of which is Gina Breedlove, who is our uh, medicine woman, our, our chief wellness officer, and is a healer in a Congolese tradition, uh, sound healer. And she organizes all of us. Uh, so the others, the other members include John Dacey, Keenan Bishop, Brandy Nelson, Mark Etienne, Y'all have an all NBA team, Kate, like no <laughs> fucking joke. And I look at, and you know, somebody I like know and love very dearly, like Mark and Keenan, especially. I'm flabbergasted, like the incredible humans you have on your team. Just need to say that out loud. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's an amazing team. Right. And we, Keenan talks about it as if it's just sort of a, a, a Wu Tang arrangement, right. Where we are all sort of like, I got a cipher. Oh shit. Yeah. So <laughs> we are dope. all sort of like flying high in other ways in our lives, but then like come together around this entity and around this effort and sort of the way each of us in our sort of singular beauty and singular gifts are offerings, right? Come together, combined as this really powerful force of healing and, and repair in the world, right? So what I know about myself as a leader and my evolution is when the mission became more important than the people, mm. the, none of it made sense, right? And so including myself, more important than me, I said it to my own children, like the kids I'm working for are more important than you. You're fine. I'm going to go. And they are fine. But but that's a lot to say to young children, right? Like Absolutely. the fight yeah. I'm fighting is more important than me being at your game. You know, and so the the piece that I've made with that is that is part of the journey is that the, like a lot of the sort of leadership modality was and for many people is an expression of trauma. Right. And so what does it mean uh, to truly finally heal from that? What does it mean to truly finally make peace with one's self and to sort of begin to learn how to live without shame or guilt or in, in some kind of power struggle with other people? What does it mean to be forgiving towards oneself and towards the people around you? What does it mean to create a culture, a community, a workspace where folks are taking care of each other in this way. And so that has, that is really where sort of my story is at the moment culminating in the sense that we have been pushing at that needle for 25 years. I have 28 years, right? And it's not moving, right? It won't, it won't move. It won't move. And so how do we dismantle this thing if standing in schools and throwing our bodies and our organizations and all this money at the system is not undoing it. What do we do? Okay, well, who's holding the thing together? Well, the white, the rich white guys with money are the ones who are holding this thing together, right? And so where do they congregate? Well, they congregate in corporate spaces. They congregate in workspaces, right? And so what would it look like to enter those spaces with love, with respect, with compassion, with grace, and sort of teach this kind of humanizing, dignifying orientation to, yeah, we can call it DEI if you want to, but, you know, while I don't want to surrender the language, yet another category of language to right. hate, it is successfully being problemized at the moment. And so what we end up really talking about is happiness and belonging. Right. Because this is what we're after for every person, regardless of identity, regardless of history, uh, regardless of role. Each of us wants to be happy at work and each of us wants to belong. And the more those things become true at work, the more these lessons and the more these ways of being can then be sort of exacted and brought into other spheres of our of our world. Yeah. First of all, Kate, I just appreciate the depth of your story and the evolution around mistakes you made and finding forgiveness and, and finding that circle of people to help you heal and that you continue to be your healing journey and, and watching you build rethink, right? Having a chief wellness officer, a medicine woman, um, I can't count on just this one hand, any companies, for-profit, non-profit, whatever, that have someone not only with that title 
but that background. And so I'm curious, like from a organizational perspective and then from a personal perspective, what is like, why did you make that decision when you formed Rethink to have that role? Because I think most people are probably like, what kind of foo-foo smoking? What is, okay, you on shrimp? What is, does someone drug you? Like, so I'm, I'm curious about like the why behind it. And then pragmatically, because, you know, people want to hear the role. Okay, what kind of impact has that had? You know, yeah, so I'm curious yeah. about like what that has meant and not just impact in the traditional sense, but from mm-hmm. a personal sense. Yeah. So the, um, all of us, the whole team orients around Gina Breedlove as sort of a, a source of truth and a source of access, a source of ground, groundedness, a source of a reminder of our own divinity and our own access to our own gods, right? And so by being in, in relationship with our own source, each of us shows up as a more useful, more divine, more grounded resource for our clients, right? And so Gina helps us remember who we are in that sense and helps us really provide the kind of medicine for each other and for ourselves that would allow us to be as well as possible in any given day and as useful, therefore, as possible in any given day. There is a kind of like loving community that we are, we have learned how to build, we are learning how to build, and she is really at the center of that care. So coming to know her, coming to respect her and coming to be really deeply affected personally by her work I came to understand that this was the only way forward, right? And so, and each of the founding partners feel that way about her too, right? Just feel like, well, uh, (laughs) how would you do it any other way at this point, right? Like there's so much unconsciousness in the world. There's so much cruelty and such a like growing blob of hate, right? And so in Gina's words, we are fighting a war on consciousness and the mm. only solution is to ground in our own love and our own access to the divine and our own sources of truth and sort of share as much of that as possible, you know, within a business model that I will admit we use different language in different contexts, right? Like depending mm. on what words to describe this would not alienate, what words to describe this would invite people in. And, mm. and, but, you know, we thought, we thought we'd have to sort of come through the back door with a lot of this message, with a lot of this part of the work. We thought it would just yeah. sort of be behind the scenes and who we are, but not necessarily as forward. And what we find is that anyone who meets her, anyone who hears her voice, anyone who becomes aware of this aspect of our offering would like a little bit of that for themselves right now. <laughs> you know? Like no one is, no one is without is no one doesn't need medicine anymore. You know, like we're all in so much pain at all these different levels because of the world we're living in, right? And so you see a source of real healing and you reach for it. I mean, that sounds so incredibly powerful, right? Yet you're also working with clients that don't have a gene of breed love, right? And so how do you go about like taking the lessons of what you've learned having Gina sensory all in your equity work and your healing? Because I imagine... You know, I'm thinking about this like a Voltron at like, you know, analogy of like you all plug together with Gina being at the center of it. And then you can all individualize and but still bring that energy, that healing you have with Gina at the center of your work. Right. But there's yeah. no 
quote unquote, how do you build with these organizations without them probably ever wanting to hire someone with her incredible spiritual healing? When they meet her, they want her, they want her in the room. They want time with her. That happens most of the time. And so even when we're doing virtual, even when we're holding virtual space, she will join, Uh, she will ground the community. She will, you know, remind people that they have diaphragms and like (laughs) breath and mm. flesh and feet and ears. Right. Like, and they, you know, she will embody people before we end up doing this work. And then, so that's like sort of one end of the spectrum. And another end of the spectrum is one of our key offerings is a learning journey, a healing journey, what we call it a learning journey in Montgomery, Alabama, where it's really deep site-based oh, wow. work uh. that ends at the river, right? Where she is really helping everyone. Everyone who comes to these gatherings has so much grief, right? And so, because we all are holding grief, we're all walking around with it in our bodies and we all want to discharge it. I heard this interview with this little girl yesterday about the new Little Mermaid. And she was like, yeah, because I guess there's a really sad part. And she was like, yeah, it lets you let go of your tears. It lets you let your tears out. Like that was her explanation Mm. of like the function of this movie. Right. Mm. And that is that is a huge part of what ends up happening. Not in all engagements at all, but in some of these more carefully crafted healing places, we sort of set folks up to be moved and then to be in a position to as a working community. Really, I know this sounds shocking, but as a working community, begin to cause real repair in the moment and begin to humanize even the, you know, the bad guys you almost voted off the island or you wish you could vote off the island. Like all of a sudden this person looks human to you. And all of a sudden this person is aware of your pain too. And so we just find that, you know, the first sort of the full spectrum of what we're doing, there are opportunities for letting this way of thinking about oneself and one's work community in. Mm. So to get on the ground level, how has that impacted the way that you do your work? So imagine you go, Kate, 10 years ago, you know, you founded this national nonprofit, you left it, took some time, found to rethink, like, what's been like the impact for you um, in terms of how you lead in these engagements with this different wellness, spiritual healing culture you've all created? I think the biggest change is just how much less I talk. (laughs) <laughs> like there's a, just I, just quite a bit more listening and quite a bit less interrupting, uh, you know, not always, but a fair amount of not knowing that I know better than anybody else in the room. Right. And so that sort of arrogance, I think, has shifted pretty considerably for me. My faith in sort of the, the wisdom of the room has really grown. I think I'm much less combative. I think I'm much less interested in winning. Mm. I haven't taken the old Harry Potter quiz in quite some time, but I did used to really register quite strongly as a Slytherin, right? And it made perfect sense to me because I understood power as the thing one needed to protect children, right? To serve children. And so as a teacher, I knew I needed to accumulate more power. Great. Principal, check. I need to accumulate more power. Go to the state. Great. Check need more power, need access to all the teachers everywhere. Great, more power, right? And so that accumulation of power and access was sort of a driving factor for a good part of my professional life. And what has shifted, I think, for me is 
localizing the power or, or finding like a locus of power in each individual and knowing that each individual has their own shit going on, their own blockages, their own stuff that they're holding, their own fear, their own shame, right? Like everyone has a secret shame. Everyone has a secret fear, right? And so what would it look like if we were actually vulnerable with each other, actually had boundaries with each other, like really understood what it would mean to care for each other in healthy, connected, but grounded uh, ways and ways that like each of us has integrity. Each of us has like an energetic field that is whole. And there's just absolutely a variety of different kinds of uh, different levels and amounts and kinds of healing that each of us needs to do. But for me, noticing that each individual has so much personal mm-hmm. power and just personal re- like recovery to do, like healing to do, you know, and sort of wondering less about who's the asshole in the room and who's in my way is to sort of begin to understand that, well, most of the time I'm the asshole in the room. <laughs> I'm in my way. <laughs> right. And, and just, yeah, yeah, it's me. Hey, it's me. I'm the problem. And so, and, but, but then to know that each person is orienting to themselves in that way too, right? Like, I mean, they all, everyone has a, a sort of a variety of like levels of arrogance or defense or, you know, whatever might be in the way. But if you can, if you can locate power in each individual, and know that if each individual was in less pain and was feeling more connected to others and was feeling more like at the, a part of things and more welcomed to be their actual selves in this space and more heard. One of the things we talk about a lot is, is professional agency. Like if everybody at work felt like, you know, the whole time I'm here, I am gaining in professional value. The whole time I'm here, I'm learning. I feel like I have access to information, I have access to power, then I can contribute. And like, it, it doesn't have to be such a struggle. So much of the struggle is right now too is, is intergenerational, right? Because the, the youngs have come up and reacted to this culture that you and I were raised in and they are not they having it. No, they're not. They're not having it. And they're not wrong, right? But all of us are real defensive about that, right? We're like, yeah. well, I walked uphill in snow both ways and bare mm-hmm. feet. I worked all these hours and yeah, I you're gonna have, you, you have to do it. You just got to shut up and grin. I mean, I, that exact quote isn't said, but it's often implied. Oh, absolutely. Right? You and certainly get you to do, each wait other. your turn. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. And so I'm obsessed with all these like comedians and memes and reels and TikToks about this because if you watch the Gen Z and even the younger millennials in these in these little bitty narratives, you see boundaries. You see rest you see resistance yep. to bullshit you see a demand for my own humanity my own dignity my own time and an identity that isn't rooted in who i am professionally so that's a very long answer to that question but i think i'm just trying to say my aim at this point in my professional life is to be well and to spread as much of that as i can in workplaces with a very, which a, with a quieter, but certainly stronger route of just driving at belonging, driving at kindness, driving at racial equity, gender equity, identity equity, right? Like making a world in which who you are, how you show up, what you look like, how you live, what you want to believe is, is acceptable and loved. 
You know, there's so much of what you shared, Kate, that resonates with how I've, I think, evolved and how I see the work that we do, right? And I think I've talked to you about my own spiritual intuitive journey. I'm looking at the book Oneness, which I've only thumbed through, which you recommended I get in my bookshelf. So as I'm interviewing, like that book is calling out like, Ron, read me again. So (laughs) so that's literally what I hear in my head. Um, But this idea of spiritual healing Mm -hmm. as the core of our liberation as people, right? And I think most of what I read in our, say the acronym, DEI space does not acknowledge that at all. And I often find that a lot of the work that I've been involved in the, you know, different trainings, I won't name the different people. It was always very heady mm-hmm. without acknowledge and, and even heart, mm-hmm. but not spirit or soulful. Yeah. Right. So I'm curious for you, like, how does that start translating when you are seeing these leaders and particularly, I'm going to focus on this because you talked about like white supremacist, patri- toxic patriarchy, right? How's this start affecting white men in particular, right? Because I have in my head, like full tilt, like in my lived experience as an Asian American male, white men have a really hard time being vulnerable. And I would say cishet men generally do, but like mm-hmm. white men in particular, mm-hmm. How does this power of spirit and healing, like, how does that transform these particularly white male leaders in these spaces? Because I think for me, that's the, that's like, I would think the big 64, that like, wonder, you know, wondering minds really want to know, like, can't we think, y'all talk a good game, but mm-hmm. really, these moves are going, mm-hmm. they're going to mm-hmm. start crying. Oh, they're going to cry, but they're going to go back to being like the dudes on succession. Please. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> I am not saying I could help Kendall, but I could help the rest of them, I think. Um, But uh, there's a whole category of people who have no interest in evolving, right? There's a whole category of people who are working in a corporate structure that is so carefully compartmentalized that the suffering of anyone doesn't end up mattering to the bottom line and therefore to the cishet white men leading it, right? Like they are protected and they are fine being protected Uh, like as all the characters in succession are right like so Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter who's president because we're gonna win either way right so so i'm not i can't speak to like this whole category of folks who just have no awareness and no interest and no motivation to evolve as as leaders or as men but most leaders and again this is the youngs leading us most leaders are aware of the te- of the at least the intergenerational tension going on in their organization. Like most leaders are aware that the youngs aren't having it, the olds are pissed, and things are kind of falling apart because at the very least, a third of their workforce has changed in the last two years, right? And so mm. like now you have my attention. You have my attention because retention, right? You have my retention because of transience, because of dynamism because of productivity, like all these things are down, right? And so what is it? What do you need me to do? You know, and so if we can, if we can make a compelling case to the person who works for the person who works for the person who works for that guy, eventually I might find myself in a room with that guy. And if he is consensual, meaning I agree to be coached by you, I agree 
to this relationship. I agree, you know, not just because my HR lead told me I have to, but like, <laughs> I'm looking at you. I've chosen you because I've been given a couple of choices, right? We always give people choices of who they want to coach. And if that one didn't work, we'll get two more choices, right? Mm-hmm. But if, if you can be in relationship with a person who is there for your evolution, your thriving, your happiness, you know, we start to really open create some openness, create some spaciousness for the possibility that I also don't love to live this way. And I feel kind of haunted by all of these things that I have to be in public and by all of these sort of unconscious Mm. moments I have been a part of. Mm. And to your point, there's been so much destructive, just disassembling DEI work that's happened where it's just really, really painful navel gazing, really painful problem examination with a ton of blaming, shaming and blaming white people, right? And so this backlash that we've seen is not totally unrelated to the choices that we've made within the movement, right? Like it is like it is now time for the white people to be gathered in the center of the room and, you know, ritual humiliation is required if you want to keep your job. Right. Like you have to accept responsibility for all of the pain of everyone in this room or else we can't go on. Right. And we've and we have forgotten about the distance between the hurt that coworkers hold and have and are walking around with because of generational systemic oppression and the harm or the injury that's been caused at work. Right. And we and for so long we've been conflating as if all of that pain could be healed by a shift in policy or a shift in relationship, right? A lot can be healed by con- by a shift in consciousness at work, and a lot can be healed by changes in the culture of a workplace and by the ch- and by changes to the policy. But the disconnect between the way we were approaching this for a couple of decades of like, mm. you know, the white people have to have to suffer now; they have to be made smaller so that other people can be made bigger. And that's just not real. That's like there's there's room for everyone to be whole. There's room for everyone to love themselves and and experience love. Is that a threat to a lot of white men in power? Absolutely, because I don't know what it looks like to shift things, right? Like I like the way things are because I'm in charge. Uh, I can relate to that, you know. And, and and loss is often required to get to the next phase of anything, right? So, but that and that is scary, but. I think in the right hands and in the right psychologically safe spaces, this can be done with grace and with love because white supremacy has dehumanized all of us, right? Like racism doesn't just harm people of color. It it takes something away from everyone. And so you get something back when you do the work in this way. Like everybody gains when you do the work in this way. And you start to notice how much disharmony you were conducting and how much disharmony you were hosting in your place of business and you're relieved yeah. by the shift. That's what we see. Hmm. This brings me back. I attended a undoing racism workshop by mm. the beautiful folks at PSAP. I think pre pre COVID 2018, oh, yeah. roughly mm-hmm. maybe 2017. Mm-hmm. And I remember the truth bomb that hit me. It was the exercise of going through white, black, Latinx, Asian, what are the things you enjoy about being that race? It was a very fascinating conversation because when it talked about white, it's like, we can be anything we want. We have all the power and all these things. And all the things for people 
for, for those of us as people of color, joy, culture, food, things that like, I would say have soul, right? And when, not a surprise, the brilliant black female facilitator said, you know what white supremacy has done to all of us? A disconnected head from heart. I said, oh, shit, no, wait. It, that landed on me in such a way that I think that statement has affected so much of my own coaching, whether with clients, whether with career coaching, whether with folks internally where I work. I mean, it just, that understanding of, wait a second, we are all trying to reconnect this. And therefore, you're right. You know, there is room for everyone to be healed, to be healed and be loved, right? And so this understanding of the way that my identity showed up, right? And it's something I've started to talk about a bit more openly is that I didn't ask for a white adjacentness, but I have it. I just do, right? I mean, it's an asterisk. Not every Asian American Pacific Islander has white adjacency. To be clear, there's a help, uh, people's identity show up in different ways. But my experience is always, wait a second, I have enough privilege because of the way that I've lived and the way that um, white people generally see me to be able to have conversations with white people generally about things they would never tell Shanita or Keenan or Mark. I, I just, it's... <laughs> Yeah. I literally said this on the last podcast that I was on as a guest, right? Talking about API, API leadership. And it's something that I think a lot of that groundedness comes from my understanding of spirit, my intuition, my ancestral wisdom. Like I have been on that journey to tap into that. So to even get this deeper, if you want to share this, I'm curious, like how Gina's helped you through that deeper spirit spiritual journey of like healing and being able to see and understand what the totality of like our universe and spirituality is. So as you say, you know, white people end up having a sense of like the, you know, the value of being white in America is the privilege, is the power, is the access, is the presumption of innocence, uh, the presumption of intellectual capacity. Mm. But what we did give up in order to enjoy this construct of whiteness, generation by generation was our own people, our own ancestry, our own lineages, our own lines, right? Like you, like you get off the boat and they're like, you can have this thing called whiteness, but you have to hand over your ethnic identity, right? Italians and Irish are good yeah. examples of that in America. It took a couple of generations for that to happen with most yeah. Italians and Irish, not all obviously, but um, certainly with my family, like the, the paraphernalia of Ireland was everywhere. The language, mm. a lot of the prayers, a lot of the deities, a lot of the imagery. I didn't know that it was Irish, right? Like it wasn't communicated mm. to me that like who we are and where we're from. There's a like there's a physical place, right? And so one right. member of my family was really clear about it and spoke about it a lot. But I didn't connect to it until I met Gina. Like I walked into her space and she was like, you are, you are of this tradition. Like, have you been, <laughs> you mm. know, and I was, and I hadn't been right. And so part of my healing journey has included absolutely a pilgrimage and, a, oh, you know, wow. sort of going town by town to the places where my people emigrated from, you know, after the famine. And so like, there are stories, mm. there are humans, there are human lives that are in some cases not tracked, but in some cases really tracked. And having a place that you're from, having a people that you are a part of, whether you are in 
relationship with them in this lifetime or not is is a very healing thing, you know, and, and so many of us just gave that up and gave up the sense of pride or the sense of knowing or the sense of belonging, right? And so part of the exchange, that ethnicity was exchanged for whiteness and access to capital, right? And so then the cult becomes how much money do you have and how much sort of affluence do you have and how can you communicate that affluence and how can you compete with that affluence? And that becomes like the thing that one gets organized around and one gets the sense of belonging from. And so for, for me, it's been, it's been a very profound set of years coming to a far more practiced and um, articulated spiritual identity, ethnic identity, and practice, right? Like just just access to my God, like access to my source uh, through absolutely consistent practice. Uh, and that has changed my life and has reorganized my life. I will say that. God, there, there's a part of me who wants to go in the way back machine with you when you took that pilgrimage to Ireland just to hear what you learned, your experience, and what some of those stories are, right? But for the sake of this podcast, I will not go in that direction. <laughs> um, I think I'll keep it on this tip that we've been with going on, like in terms of like healing and love. So when you think about the work you're all doing at Rethink, like this sounds like such a crazy, like it's where my interview mind goes like, but what's next? What, where are y'all, how are y'all evolving as people, evolving as the work, evolving what your how are clients evolving like i want to know clients are pretty universally changing like in beautiful ways and profound ways and like you just see all this progress in individuals and in a collective right and you see this shift away from who are the bad guys in this room who are the good guys in this room to re actual repair actual respect that gets built and relationship that gets built you know so like that is a profound thing to witness and to be a part of. In terms of what's next, we are playing with tech as one does. And we are sort of converting our, you know, most of us, Gina aside, the rest of us are, are career educators. And most of us spent a long time in the standards movement. And yeah. so we want to, so our, you know, sort of the way we organize the world, the way we understand the world is organized around standards. And so it was very easy for us to begin to articulate a set of standards for belonging and inclusion. Like what would it look like? So, if, you know, we, for a long time, we've been, we spent so much of our lives talking about like, what does a fourth grade math proficiency look like? Right. And we can talk about it in detail yeah. for days. I believe your wife is somewhere doing that right now. Right. Like mm -hmm. what, it, what, what is this proficiency? What does it look like? How does it manifest? And so we, we have articulated proficiency, proficiency in belonging and inclusion for managers, for leaders. So mm -hmm. if I'm a leader and I have and I am able to cause a belonging environment, what does that look like? What, what are the signs of it? And we just like in math and ELA, we have three domains. Our three domains are active belonging, meaning do I have a role that I understand? Does my team know what my role is? Is my role part of something bigger that I understand, right? This sense of professional agency, like I mentioned earlier, like do I feel like I'm growing while I'm here? Um, do I feel like I have access to people who have power in this space? And then 
the primary one, really the, the first one that we start with is genuine concern. The third domain is genuine concern, meaning do you actually care about me? Do you actually care about me? And this one was really profound for me because when the research started coming back as like Jason Schweid, uh, who led a lot of the psychometric work in during the Sanders movement, you know, started, did this like two year dive on like, what does the research tell us about belonging at work? And so it started to come back as like, I really care about your personal life as your boss. I care about your personal life. I care deeply about what matters to you, what your priorities are, what your availability is, right? And so my early response to this was, are you kidding me? Like we... Like we have, we have to care now about how everybody feels and what everybody wants and what everybody is. And the answer is yes, we do. We do. And we were taught that we shouldn't because it was inefficient and not the point, but it is actually the entire point. And so being able to articulate these standards, we've now been able to create a measure where we can give folks feedback on whether or not teams feel like they have a sense of belonging. And then just like in standards, this is a formative piece of information. It's not a a final judgment on who you are as a a person and a leader. It is a statement about where you are in your growth journey and what needs doing. You know, like if you're super introverted, super unemotional, don't actually care. We can teach you how to pretend. (laughs) We can teach you how to make people feel more safe near you, more connected to you by learning their children's names. You know, like we can Mm -hmm. we can help you foster this environment, even if it's not your first instinct because of the way you were raised or how your brain works or whatever. It's so fascinating you you say that because it validates a lot of who I've always been as a person. I mean, you've known me for a minute, right? That's my genesis plot. People like, Ron, you remember all kinds of shows through details about people. I'm like, I don't know if I think about it. It just, it's sort of like my Jeopardy brain, right? I just consume people ask me like, hey, how did you know this person? I was having a conversation with my colleagues and helping her come up with a sourcing list for a search we have to relaunch. And literally I'm looking through probably about a hundred people and all these stories and things start coming in my head. I'm like, I met this person through that. And I had this conversation. Oh, let me look. Oh yeah. It's just like this flood of information. And so the personal is important to the work because it allows people to be seen and heard. And I want to, I want to put a moment out here where you saw and heard me. I'm going to put Kate like in the center of this in terms of like when you did it for me. I'm going to bring us back to the time we worked at New Leaders. And we were in an LLDT meeting and a whole bunch of promotions. I, you know where this is going, right? A whole bunch of promotions get talked about, but not me. And I remember feeling, and it was lingering. It wasn't not just that meeting, obviously. Mm-hmm. This like saltiness back in my early 30s about, wait a second, all these people my age, they get promoted. Like, they were like, what the hell am I doing? Mm-hmm. Am I not worthy? Am I, and I remember then because Joyce Masek, shout out to her, mm-hmm. built a safe enough space. And I was just like, boy, if I don't say something about this, I'm, my head is going to explode. And I, I remember <laughs> in typical Ron Rapitalo fashion, even though I tried to dial it back, it came across pretty strong. Like, yo, what the fuck? Am I going to get promoted or what? I mean, that's not what I said to Joyce, mm-hmm. obviously. That was mm-hmm. in my kind of strong emotions of feeling that. And then she talked to you. You had heard it. I think you both talked to me. It was like, well, Ron, we got to figure something out. We value you, right? You do mm-hmm. such important work here. And I got promoted, right? 
And I think when I give that story being seen and heard, some of it was like learning that I had space to advocate, two, that I was listened to, three, that I was really valued, and four, that something actually happened, right? One of my kind of prouder moments at New Leaders was being able to tell people in resume talk, well, I was promoted four times in seven years. People go, what? I'm like, yeah, it's the place that I often look back to folks like you. Yeah. And I mean, the gaggles of people that have, that are part <laughs> of the New Leaders community, right? It's the place where professionally, I have felt the most at home. I learned my trajectory went through the wazoo. And there are things that Mm -hmm. I've obviously learned from that time that I think, but new leaders was the foundation. It wasn't Morgan Stanley, wasn't Teach America, wasn't NYU. Mm -hmm. And dare I say this, and please folks in my agility consulting fan, don't take this as disrespect, (laughs) but like I'm at a different point in my life. Like new leaders was the the coming of age for me. And so I just wanted to put that out that I just remember, and I have many other instances of you seeing and hearing us, not, not me, but like as a team, there were many moments where you're like, you just stepped in. I remember that adult learning, you know, theory, you know, training you put together what seemed like in 30 minutes. And it was like, <laughs> holy shit, there's like 30 slides. Like, yeah, I went this up last night. <laughs> oh my God. I still quote that fucking training to people. In my own, I'm nowhere near a master creator of a training. But I think one of the things I learned from you through adult learning theory was deepening my facilitation chops and like fast forward now, like I'm now known as a really strong facilitator, but a lot of that foundation, frankly, was you and Darlene making sure like, wait a second, why aren't staff, but y'all need some facilitative leadership. I'm like, another thing. (laughs) There's a way to structure safe spaces and be like, and so fast forward, I now, and rightly so, become very demanding when those spaces are created. I'm like, yeah. y'all, y'all got to step up your game. This is going to be a real yeah. problem. If I'm in that room and then it's not being done, sometimes when you have learned to create those spaces, well, it makes you an extra critic. And sometimes you have to dial it back and just be in the room and let the space happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to make sure I share that with you because it's... um. Something that, that means actually, a lot. I remember that yeah. table. Like I can see the table. Yeah. You know? I can still see that table too and kind of feel that energy. And it was just, yeah. it's always, a, there's always these fascinating moments. Like I think as we've grown as leaders, but there's these moments that like, I think that we tend to remember that like really shaped us. Yeah. Um, Those are foundational years and, and a set of foundational values about learning, about growth, about development. And about team. Yeah. Still the best people I've ever worked with have come from inside of New Leaders and the alumni yeah. of the program. And the, and yeah, and the, and the cohorts, yeah. 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 Well, Kate, um, talking about values, stories, and lessons, I wanted to give you space in my second to last question for you, which is aptly so, because it's the name of my damn podcast. What <laughs> is Kate Gerson's rondering? Ron, will you define ronderings for me? Yes. So ronderings are a story with a set of values and lessons you want to share. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the the set of values, the lesson that I've, I think my story is clear, but I think the the lesson that I've taken that feels really important to communicate is around the humanity and dignity of everybody you meet. 
right? We get so caught up in what we're trying to accomplish, what our personal agenda is, or, you know, I mean, part of what blocks this for me for so long was that I was so caught up in the mission, right? So caught up in the desperate, horrible, horrible need of children of color living in poverty and sitting in schools that are not providing them with the experiences they need to advance in age-appropriate ways. That just felt like such an enormous, and feels like such an enormous crisis of conscience for our country and for every adult trying to work in that environment. It is, it is demoralizing, right? And that, so the mission of trying to fix that was so sacred to me that I was not able to take care of my own body, my own life, my own spirituality, my own wholeness, wellness. And I certainly wasn't prioritizing the humanity and the dignity of everybody I met, right? And so like really everybody I met, it was like, what can you do for the cause? Like, how are you, are you, are you with us or are you not? And are you, are you going to help now? How much are you going to help now? Right. And because there's no time. And the truth is that I, you know, the truth I didn't know is that there's, there's lifetimes of time, you know? And so the real question is, how are you using this one? And are you using it in harmony with other people and in community with other people and in relationship with other people that will keep you whole and keep you strong as you do great work? There's something about this idea of like, working on this life, understanding there's lifetimes yeah. in totality of like where yeah. we are. That reminds me about the movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once, right? Yes. There's a, a spiritual brilliance in the movie that really resonated with me and Michelle Yeoh's mm -hmm. character in particular, being able to pull mm -hmm. from, because everything that has existed already has existed, right? Which some people like, they go say, what? <laughs> I'm like, no, what? yes, <laughs> th th yeah. It, that, so everything yeah. that has happened already has happened. It's just what right. is our... So and a lot of this comes from like my own read of new age spirituality, my mid twenties when I read mm -hmm. you know, Gary Sukov, Neil Donald Walsh, all those characters, right? And to this movie, this idea that like when we create the deeper space within ourselves to access, mm -hmm. and in the movie for Michelle Yeoh's character, all the different things she might have needed. I need the acrobat or all these things, right? Which I think is some level. I think is a good framework, but I don't think that's really how it works, right? <laughs> but it, it's a good, like, kind of, like, you know, holding of space for people, like, oh, that's, oh, that's how everything, everywhere, all at once happens, because, oh, I could see that. But I, I, I think it's probably pulled a lot more seamlessly. It's more like this rather than yeah. this kind of, like, yeah. linear approach, which the movie sort of showed, right? And so I just wanted to call that out, we because I think there's... that linear structures, linear constructs, they make it seem simpler to us. Yeah. Well, Kate, before I let you go, is there anything you want to shout out about you and your work for the audience? I think just come join us, you know, check out the Instagram. We are putting up a fair amount of content on there to communicate a lot of this learning. Our Instagram is rethink.us, R-E-T-H-I-N-C.us. And that's, that's the website as well. And we would love to hear from you. We would love to learn about your work and learn about the challenges you're facing and any support you might need in this journey as you heal the place you work, heal the way you work and heal yourself. Kate, thank you so much for being a guest on my podcast. Um, it's been a long time coming to have you as a guest from my perspective and 
to have this conversation. So thank you for offering to be put on wax. This will be out of ethers <laughs> soon enough. And to leave our audience with, you know, something that really sits with me is that everyone deserves to be healed and be loved, right? I think you start from that notion if you really believe it and start actualizing it, mm-hmm. that that's the way for us to dismantle this white supremacy, toxic patriarchy, capitalism system that exists, right? But it starts with things that I think are fundamentally human. Fundamentally human, Ron. That is the whole idea. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. Ron Dering's audience. Check you out later. Think about the lesson, the rondering that Kate leaves us with, fam. Everyone has room to be healed and to be loved. Isn't that what we believe? Shouldn't we believe that? But we know that our systems are not designed for that, right? Especially here in America and across the globe. So just deeply appreciative of how Kate and her organization, Rethink, are rethinking about how they are doing their work to help leaders and companies see that they also deserve to be healed and be loved. Peace out, y'all.